So I'm sitting with Karen Joy Fowler with Prosecco. Yes. This is how we should do all... I am on my second glass. Why, what are we celebrating? We are celebrating the publication of my book here in the UK. And what is the name of your book? I'm not going to do any work here. <laughs> I don't blame you because it's a very long title and you might get it wrong if you had to do Go it. Go on. We are all completely beside ourselves. Now this was question number um, 53 on my list of questions for you about the title. But I thought perhaps before we talk about the, the premise of the book... Uh, and we should have a, a warning perhaps about some spoiler alerts, because I want to be careful about it. Can we talk a little bit about the title? Straight off. I'm so sorry, can I That's just right. set up? Are um, we going to have to move? move? Oh, yeah. well, no, yeah. I'm just thinking, oh, just I'll move you now, to save yeah. you moving later. All right. Best beginning ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So Karen, could you tell us the name of your book? Because it's a very long title that I won't pronounce because it's not It's over there in a great pile. The title is We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. Could I ask, as a, perhaps a, a way to describe the novel, for those who haven't read it, about why you chose that title? What, what possible... It seems to have a lots of nuanced, rather nicely balanced reading. That's, um, that was my hope. Um, I, I like a title that means one thing when you pick the book up and you haven't read it yet, but means something different when you finish the book. And so I hope the title functions in that way. There is a literal explanation of it, I think, when um, our heroine remembers uh, a young graduate student from Birmingham, I think, gives it as that, that sense of, uh, we're so excited that we yes, are completely... we're so excited that we're completely beside ourselves. Is this a book yes. about excitement on some level? <laughs> <laughs> huh. I don't I don't know that I would pick that word exactly, but um I the other meaning um or another meaning that I know for the you know for the colloquial phrase we are all completely beside ourselves is um that we are all sort of distraught, we are all upset and that's probably closer to the situation in my book. There is a... Well, I'll ask you about the premise before I ask you perhaps about how you approached writing about it. Um, there is a very helpful end note in, in the novel where you describe a, a personal background which perhaps echoes slightly some of the, the themes of the novel. It's about it's a mixture of family and science um, to save people... Uh, I, if I don't want people to read towards the end in case they, they, they glimpse the final page. What was, the, what was the, that personal background to, to how you came up with the idea or how the idea was perhaps handed to, to you? The idea was exactly <laughs> handed to me. Um, the idea for the book was actually my daughter's, not mine. And I do think that as she has since decided to be a writer herself, that there will be sadly no more great ideas coming from her, that she sure. will be keeping them for herself in future. So I was just lucky to be given this one. Uh, my father, um, her grandfather, who died before she was born, so she never met him, and he's kind of a mythical figure in the family, was an animal behaviorist, um, and he worked with rats. He studied learning processes, and, um, and much of this involved running rats through mazes and seeing how they learned to make the right turn and not the wrong turn. And, um, and I spent... 
a fair bit of time as a child in the rat lab where there were cages and cages of rats and I was allowed to take them out and play with them and um, I always say that there can be few people in the world who get the nostalgic hit off the smell of rat cages that I do. So um, I was talking to my daughter about her grandfather's work. Um, she is an animal behaviorist herself, so um, it was a very natural conversation to be having. Uh, but I began to talk to her about um, not my father's work, but a a man who had worked at the same university as my father, who did a very, very famous experiment involving um, his own child. And the idea that my daughter suggested to me, which is what the book is about, was that um, I should think about what it would be like to be that child um, in that experiment. That, and, and just what it would be like to be a child whose father thought it was appropriate to use your childhood as a psychological experiment. I mean, it's a fascinating idea for, for how to use the dysfunctional family, if it can be described as a genre or that, that, that sort of form yes. of the novel. Well, I wanted, um, you know, I wanted a family, that, uh, again, it, it all sort of flowed from the experiment, so I didn't, I didn't set out wanting anything in particular. I just tried to imagine what it might be like. But I did want everybody in the family to be quite well-intentioned that things have gone horribly wrong, but through no deliberate um, choices. They'd made some deliberate choices that turned out very badly, but they did not know how badly they would turn out. They did not anticipate how badly they would turn out. That's almost an image of, of a kind of the scientific research, maybe that your, that your father did, and you explore it through the novel, that uh, we that scientists do things for the greater good, but that perhaps involve uh, uh, particular kinds of research and experimentation that... Um, can be very hard on the individual research subject, yes. Was this something that you were aware of growing up and when you went to visit your father's lab and you saw those rats and mazes? Was, I mean, it must have, was it a strange... You know, the rat lab um, was a very happy place in, in my head. I, I have since read that often the rats are starved to make them, um, to motivate them in the mazes. I have no idea if the rats in my father's lab were starved or not. They appeared happy. They were happy to play with me. Um, um, so at least as a child, it was easy um, it was easy not to imagine that they were unhappy. But the part of the lab that I was not permitted in um, was where the monkeys were kept. My dad did not work with the monkeys. And I remember being relieved about that because there was no way to pretend that the monkeys were happy. They were. Um, they, it, the reason I wasn't allowed in was that, that if you went anywhere near their cages, they would reach out and try to grab you and they would bite you. And um, they were clearly... Um, Curious, miserable, and possibly insane. I think that um, the world of animals and human treatment of animals is just a bewilderingly contradictory place for a child to navigate. It, you know, I remember um, my mother reading Charlotte's Web to me, and just thinking, you know, to myself, um, oh, I hope Wilbur isn't killed and eaten, I hope Wilbur isn't killed and eaten. But I never made that next step that the bacon on my plate was once Wilbur. So, you know, uh, and I, I think in the end note, I, I'm not quite remembering, but I think in the end note I talk about how um, 
there were the rats in my father's lab, and then um, sometimes there, one of the rats would wash out in some way and come home, and then the rat would no longer be a research subject. The rat would be a pet, and a pet was entitled to all kinds of treatment, including you know emergency vet calls if something was wrong. And but simultaneously, our neighbor was trying to get rid of rats in his house and um, put out poison and uh, a net that caught up. Um, several of the neighborhood cats and my dog as well all died because of the rat poison. So it was just, you know, one rat is a beloved cosseted pet, another rat is to be poisoned in its sleep. And, um, I think, you know, the only way a child makes his or her way through it is just by not connecting the dots in any way. This sort of That story slightly makes its way, I think, into the novel that one of the characters, Rosemary's brother, now is it Lowell? Or Lowell. Lowell. Uh, I think he has pet rats. He has pet rats, yes. This is my crude journalism uh, 101 question. But how, how personal is another? Obviously, there are obviously lots of the setting, uh, the father, is the, and Davis University, is that where? All of that is very personal, mm. yes. I, um, I don't think of myself as a writer who writes autobiographical material, my, my general impulse when I'm writing a book is to try to imagine what it would be like not to be me. So I'm trying to move as far away from myself as I can, usually, when I write. But it's just exhausting to make up everything. So I do tend to use settings that I know, um, or if I'm making up the setting, to use characters that I know um, just... But I, I, you know, pull from all parts of my life. Um, it's interesting. That, um, Sound of Walsh, right? That's all right. <laughs> the father in my book um, bears a certain superficial resemblance to my father. There are a few things. Um, my father was an atheist. My father liked to fly fish. Um, and my father was a psychologist. All of those things are also true of the father in the book. But... Um, but his work um, and his behavior do not match my father's in any way. And yet, because people who know the family see the superficial um, similarities, I, 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 and you'd think six novels in I would anticipate this, but I don't. You know, the, the questions I have to field from the family, well, I, I would never have believed your father could behave in such a way. So, well, you could never have believed it because he never did. He never would. Uh, not is my that, father. But. Is that another slight nuance of the title again? The sense of a, a fiction, fiction, a, a world that's just beside us, just to, to two inches to the side, but not the same. Oh, as. I love that. I had never thought of that. What a great excuse for my title. <laughs> I had I had two or three explanations for the title, but not that one, which is the best yet. Thank you. <laughs> we'll come back to a little bit of that. I'm sort of interested about the, the idea of storytelling and, and, and Rosemary as a storyteller. I think she was fascinating um, the way she told story. But one of the, and, and I do want to tread carefully about this with the te- for people who haven't read the novel, that there is a massive uh, spoiler alert. Uh, Potential in any conversation about this novel, and, and perhaps we can uh, insert uh, those sorts of alerts as, as we go along. But 
I wonder what when you were planning the novel, there must have been a, a narrative choice to make about when you revealed uh, the identity of Fern, who's Rosemary's sister. Were there different ways that you toyed with how to, to present Fern? There really it? weren't. Um, I, I always knew that I would tell the story the way that I told the story. And uh, But perhaps the most honest answer is that uh, my daughter gave me the idea for this story on the millennial new year. So that's how long I've been thinking about it. And I actually started writing it back then. And I put it down, and I wrote the Jane Austen Book Club. Okay. And then I wrote a book which came out here under the title of The Case of the Imaginary Detective. And so many years passed between me starting the book and me finishing the book. And um, and so, you know, what I thought I was doing is kind of lost in the mists of time. I no longer really remember. Um, well, I read an old interview with you, and I think at the end of it, someone asked the, you know, the classic end journalism question, what do you do, what are you up to next? And you said, I'm writing a book about a chimp. And I had just started reading the novel when I was reading this, and I thought, I'd better put this down so I'd heard that there was a, a twist. But I assumed that, that you were referring to a completely different, different novel. It is dangerous to say that the, the, oh, it was, there's a sort of game of literary hide-and-seek. What, what, what for you was the, the, the reason just to withhold for those sort of... I think that. You know, um, <clears throat> very simply, it's the reason that Rosemary gives in the text that I felt... Um, Lowell expresses a, a criticism of their father's work at some point because he says that, um, that their father and psychologists involved in these experiments in general started from an assumption of difference and so the chimp has to prove at every stage yes I am capable of this yes I do have these emotions yes um, uh, and and that it would be more Darwinian to see uh, the continuity and to think okay let's let's assume similarities and then you know, look for the differences, and I wanted I wanted the reader to come in assuming the similarities, um, and so that seemed like the way to do that is that it is certainly new information, and I know that it will be surprise or I I anticipate that it will be surprising and that it will change the way you are reading the text, but I would like it not to change too much of the way you are reading the text. I would like you to still take me at my word that this is a sister like any other sister. And it was that also, did that influence the way you actually revealed that it wasn't this sort of sort of open sesame moment? It was very laid back. It was very understated. Yes, yes. So, uh, you know, I really, I really was not thinking in terms of a big surprise or a big reveal. I was thinking more in terms of where I want the reader's expectations to be set and how I want to carry forward from that. And, um, and you know, partly that's as a writer, but partly that made sense for my narrator, who is telling the story and is controlling the story very, very carefully, what, what she wants people to know and what she doesn't want people to know and why. So it seemed to me the way she would tell the story. Can we talk about Rosemary and, and, and perhaps investigate, investigate that a little bit? Um, one of the threads throughout the novel is this idea of the middle of the story and the importance of the middle of the story because it's mantra and it's and it it does make you think about how we consider our lives and how we consider any sort of set of events. What what is it about the middle of the story for you as a as a as a novelist and um, and what is it perhaps for Rosemary too? What 
I think we that? have probably very different answers if we're talking about rosemary <laughs> or we're talking about me. And the um, painful truth for me is that the middle of the novel is the hardest part for me to write. It's just, I find it impossible. Why because, well, you know, I can set up the story and I can end the story. But the middle, you're supposed to kind of keep all these balls in the air, only make it, you know, increasingly tense. So that often with my novels, I turn them in, and my editor says, well, there's a lot of to and froing in your story, which I take to mean, yes, people are running around. Um, there appears to be a great deal of excitement, um, and yet no sense of forward momentum. And that's me just, you know, desperately trying to keep the story going until the blissful moment when I've got enough pages and I can write the end. Um, and you found different ways to do that. The, I've I mean, the Jane Austen, yes. lots of different points I've of view. I've tried lots of different strategies, and I've tried having no strategy, um, uh, which um, I did, you know, with the um, case of the imaginary detective. I tried just to tell a story the way other writers tell stories with the middle. But it's an unhappy experience for me. So when I did this book, um, you know, one of the great joys was to start with the middle and just get the part I don't like out of the way. And then we can move on to the beginning and the end, which are the parts I like to do. Um, I was going to ask that question about Rosemary. Um, it, what do you think for her that the, she's... She's a fascinating narrator because she, it's not that she's pretending to forget things. She tells you when she's forgetting things. She also tells you often after the event that she's omitted something. Um, what do those omissions and excisions and elisions... What, what do... As I picture her, um, and, um, and I would be the expert, although... <laughs> I'm not going to argue. <laughs> I think you could argue. <laughs> You know, once the book is in the world, the author sadly loses all control okay. over what people see. But um, uh, but I'm going to pretend otherwise. Um, that she she has a, a reason for telling this story now, and um, she is speaking on behalf of her two siblings, neither of whom is speaking. And so she she is trying to tell the story in the most persuasive way she can. It's that you know. There's a clear audience. She's directly addressing an audience, and she's making choices about when it will be useful, how persuasive it will be if you have this information now, and how persuasive will it be if you get it later. And she is trying to optimize um, her 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 um, her argument. Is she really? And she's write, writing to some extent for and and to Lowell. Again, I don't want to sort of entice Paul what, what happens, but is he one of... Uh, it's a sort of strange idea that if he's one of the... That Fern is the other audience member she's sort of writing for, and it, there's all sorts of play about verbal and non-verbal communication. But is, is, that, is that the audience, or is it... Are we the uh, sort of un, unknowing, ignorant uh, mass audience? That I, think it's a, I think it's the larger audience okay. that she, you know, that she is certainly trying to tell their stories, and hopefully in ways that they would um, be, you know, be okay with. But, um, but she feels that they both need help um, from a, a larger, uncaring world. And so she is, she is putting their case forward. There's, it seems to be a narrative of someone who's also full of pain and guilt and, and using yes. the sorts of... Yes. She, 
evasion as a, as a kind of narrative technique. Is it, was there a bit of that? Flip? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And, you know, she is, she is talking about things that she has tried not to think about for a very long time. And so um, she eases her way into it and she sometimes, you know, makes a misstep and has to retrace her steps back to where um, the, the honest uh, account I was talking about the tone, that the, the whole idea of the novel has something of the absurd, the, uh, the comic, um, uh, which, again, is perhaps the preconceptions we have to, to come to. How did you manage that? I mean, there's obviously Rosemary's voice, but how do you deal with, with what's so strange and alien about it? And, um... I, think it's, um, I think it's a natural voice for me as a novelist, and I think in general... Um, that the more distressed I am about something, the funnier I get. Uh, I, I've had friends actually call me up having read some story that I've just published that has distressed them in some way to check in on me, and I keep saying to them, you know, you've got it all wrong, because um, I, can't, I can't be miserable in my actual life and be miserable in my imaginary life as well. So if I'm writing a miserable story, then I'm in a good place. I'm in a strong place. Okay. I can do that. It's you know, it's when I'm funny that I need this phone call where you say, you know, has something happened? Um, I had a very happy childhood, and the idea that humans behaved as badly as humans have sometimes behaved um, just came as an enormous shock to me. I've never quite gotten over it, and my only only alternative is to find it funny as often as I can. Um, is that also a way to look at it? I mean, just to, to, to see it as clearly and un, unflinchingly as possible? Yes, I think. And, you know, the book does deal with some very, some things that to me that are very distressing, and I c- could not go through them myself without a bit of levity, and I would not ask the reader to go through them without a bit of levity as well. I also find, for whatever reason, that... Uh, the books that I reread tend to be funny. That um, there are books that I that I absolutely love, and I you know I put it down thinking that was an amazing book, but I don't pick it up again unless unless it was funny. So you know, just to give you an example, um, Robertson Davies is a great favorite of mine, but the one I reread is Eleven of Malice, which is. <laughs> Which is the comic one, <laughs> although the Deptford trilogy is by far the better book, uh, or the better set of books. How, how about Ka- Kafka, who who is is a real touch, po- a deliberate touch point in the, in the novel? And again, I don't want to spoil uh, for those who, who want to to look away now; they they can. But um, there's a reason that you chose that that story. Um, but is Kafka also that that blend of the absurd and the and the the, the sort of absolutely disp- the despair of the human condition, but somehow turned into the sort of bleak of yes, log- yes. the logical something comedy. very dark humor. Yes. Did he help you with so. the writing? Did and did that story particularly help you? With I actually um, came to that story fairly late okay. in the book. I mean, I had read it and it had not, but it had not crossed my mind how apt it was to my purposes. So no, I was not really thinking about him. Peculiarly, the. Th- Thing that um, got me through the opening of the book um, was a quote from Bob Dylan, which has has disappeared from the text and which, in fact, has no relevance really to much of anything, and yet seemed to keep me going. Which was um, 
Miss Jiggs and Miss Lucy, they jumped in a lake. I'm not that eager to make a mistake. That's what I had written above my computer. And really? Somehow that spoke to me as I was writing the book. Well, oddly, I have a bo- I was going to quote Bob Dylan later in the interview. No, I was. which which it's, I can never pronounce the name of the song correctly, but it's uh, Love uh, Love Minus Love Minus Zero. Yeah, it's got that funny um, about ideals and violence. It's got a What's line, isn't it? Funny. It's, it's got a, <laughs> what are you it's doing? Got, it's got a line in it, isn't it? Love Minus something. And this Love is, Minus Zero. Yeah, and it kind of goes. Oh, oh I don't know. Um, <laughs> we'll come to ideals and violence. I would. The other. There was a couple of there's, there's Tarzan, obviously. In, 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 I was very curious, um, as a sad Star Wars fan, about Chewbacca and Han Solo. Star Wars is another sort of yes. running gag. My uh, editor, who has very little patience with popular culture, which I refer to constantly in my books, kept writing in the margins, enough with the Star Wars, enough with the Star Wars. But, but really, think, there's never enough with the Star Wars. There's never enough. There? <laughs> but it did make me think it was an apt... Uh, it was an apt... It is. Reference it point. is. Well, I've always been a little bit obsessed with um, the minority sidekick, which started when I was a child with Tonto and the Lone Ranger. Far preferred Tonto to the Lone Ranger. Everybody prefers Spock to Kirk. Um, of course. Chewbacca is my very favorite character in Star Wars. That, you know, that selfless helpmeet uh, who is always a minority racer. And you point out a particularly sort of grim. A detail at the end of the first film, which was fascinating, the the incredibly cheesy uh, ceremony. Yeah, the sort of fascistic yeah. awarding of the medals at the end. Yeah. And Chewbacca doesn't. Chewbacca doesn't get one. No. Is Why? That... What is that about? I've never noticed it, but I'm <laughs> appalled. <now. laughs> 